Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm ranking on the wheels of steel. Sankoloma, Sankolo, Sankoloma, Sanko, Sankoloma, Sankolo, Sankoloma, Sanko, Sankoloma, Sankolo, Sankoloma, Sanko, Sankoloma, Sankolo, Sankoloma, Sanko. Baba bless me for your sake. Oluwa bless me all in your name. Take all my resilience. And my diamonds, yeah, 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 yeah. I won't take you on a journey straight to paradise. I won't take you on a journey straight to paradise. Celebration in the air, jubilation everywhere. Celebration in the air, jubilation everywhere. We go party till the early morning. We go happy till the break of dawn. Celebration in the air, jubilation everywhere. Celebration in the air, jubilation. We go to San Coloma, San Colo, San Coloma, San Co, San Coloma, San Colo, San Coloma, San Co, San Coloma, San Colo, San Coloma, San Co, San Coloma, San Colo, San Coloma, San Co. But I'm being Juice you slid through. This vibe boy with Scipio, a brand new podcast show introducing the dope music you've been craving and delivering fresh perspectives on today's hottest topics. Stay tuned, we finna catch a wave. You're a musician, you create music for the world to hear it. In order for the world to hear it, they need to be able to access it. In order for them to access it, your music needs to be on every single platform available on this planet. Visit oringi.org today to see your dream become a reality. Brace for impact. Yeah. You ever see a nigga push his limits? Forming this my dream being in front of 
something the other way. I can dream it for my children, believe it for my children. I can speak it for my children. The day I shut up is the day that I stop breathing. Fake ass niggas all around just deceiving. Every cute girl took the dumb and start believing. And every little lie, they don't care about the meaning. They just keep controlling whether you wanna believe it. You ain't controlling me when you start this when I'm leaving. These niggas say they sold this for the money, can't believe it. You need some more glasses, cause I swear that I can see it. You just hold like a game every day, a nigga leaving. Ain't no responding, cause a nigga isn't breathing. Caught between the hard places, and I'm still dreaming. I'm rocking out stage while the fans are getting screaming. Believe her, you ever look straight to your pillow. Look at the sky, saying, God, I need a hero. Niggas playing too much like they playing on a tender. See, I hope we lonely, man, I hope she get the memo. All I want is fat checks, want the end with zero. Saying, thank God, now I'll live about the hair, so I ain't even sweating, I'm just dreaming of the same, bro. A million dollar cars, chasing a million dollar dream, bro, yeah. You ever see a nigga chase a dream? You ever see a nigga get on top, call me the king? I'm the greatest speaker, you can call me Dr. King. Been through a lot, lost my mother early G. I've grown since then, I ain't the little kid you seen. Taking on responsibilities, you know, like Perry 10. Yeah, I got my daughter, got my son, I got my queen. Yeah, I got my money, got my car, got my weed. Yeah, I got my hope, I got my faith, I got my dreams. These judges just steps, don't reach for better things. I won't ever settle, I ain't quitting on the thing. Making money up, my music is the only thing I dream. And a nigga on sight, who could tell me of the thing? So I can grab the mic because I'm spitting crazy things. You ever see a nigga any realer than a killer? I'ma make it on TV, nigga, what the fuck you mean, bitch? You ever look straight to your pillow? Look at this guy saying, God, I need a hero. Niggas playing too much like they playing on Nintendo. See, I hope you know me, man, I hope she get the memo. All I want is fat checks, want the end with zero. Saying, thank God, now I'll live about the hair, so I ain't even sweating, I'm just dreaming of the same, bro. A million dollar cars, chasing a million dollar dream, bro, yeah. You ever see a nigga cut his money? 20 just to come and see my wallet, and I ain't bluffing. Just call me your officer, the temper, I am cuffing. Now I'm in your ear, I really hope you're hearing something. Weed in the air for a 20 is coming. And I stay puffing, reduced in the fussing. Don't give a fuck, every song you hear me cussing. And if you don't like it, then delete me, man, it's nothing wet. When I'm all up in it like a pipe, man, I be busting. Cost a match Russia, and I swear it keep on coming. Just call me a licky fucking screw, loose or something. And I hold it back to low, I swear it keep on coming. Just like a fucking ocean, now nigga, it just swimming. I swear I can't swim him if I fall, then it's hopeless. Pull me up quick, I see a shark pull the coast, man, I'm too damn high for the shit to stay focused, shit. You ever look straight to your pillow? Look at this guy saying, God, I need a hero. Niggas playing too much like they playing on Nintendo. See, I hope you know me, man, I hope she get the memo. All I want is fat checks, want the end with zero. Saying, thank God, now I'll live about the hair, so I ain't even sweating, I'm just dreaming of the scene, bro. A million dollar cars, chasing a million dollar dream, bro, yeah. You ever look straight to your pillow? Look at this guy saying, God, I need a hero. Niggas playing too much like they playing on Nintendo. See, I hope you know me, man, I hope she get the memo. All I want is fat checks, want the end with zero. Saying, thank God, now I'll live about the hair, so I ain't even sweating, I'm just dreaming of the scene, bro. A million dollar cars, chasing a million dollar dream, bro, yeah. this segment of the Vibe Boy with Scipio podcast show, I will be joined by Dr. Matthew Petway. We will be discussing his work up to this point and the inspiration behind his brand new book. Grab your surfboard, because we finna catch a wave. This, this is, is the Vibe Boy Book Club Review of the Week. Set in a period of great turmoil and unrest, Cuban literature in the age of black insurrection 
Manzano, Placido, and Afro-Latino religion takes us on an incredible journey into the minds of the courageous African men who stood bravely in the face of colonization in order to free their people from the horrible circumstances of enslavement at the hands of European adversaries. Cuban literature in the age of black insurrection, Manzano, Placido, and Afro-Latino religion documents Placido and Manzano's unbelievable quest of freedom, liberation, and the indelible African spirit. We hope you enjoy this hand-picked featured selection in the exclusive Vibe Boy Book Club Review. This, this is, is the Vibe Boy Book Club Review of the Week. Welcome to another exciting segment of the Vibe Way with Scipio podcast show. Today, we have a very, very special guest joining us. And we're going to be talking about the spirits of Cuba, trailblazing the past with Dr. Matthew Petway, PhD. What we're going to be talking about today is, is some very serious but fun fun dialogue between he and I pertaining to the topics of Cuban literature, okay, in the age of colonial past. And so without further ado, let's introduce Dr. Matthew Petway now. Doc, you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for inviting me to the show. You're very welcome and it is my absolute pleasure, sir. It's my absolute pleasure. Could you do us a favor and, and, and lightly introduce yourself? And, and where you are right now. Absolutely. Uh, I am an assistant professor of Spanish at the University of South Alabama. And uh, I am in Mobile, Alabama. That's where the University of South Alabama is located. So I'm in a city on the Gulf Coast that actually has a history that's tied to the Caribbean, including a history that's in some ways uh, tied to the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And uh, I've been working okay, for that's so many. Cool. And, and in what way is Alabama tied to the Caribbean? I've never heard that before. Well, um, I think one of the ways was the fact that they're both port cities. Um, I know there's a Colombian narrative by Gabriel Garcia Marquez that actually has sailors leaving Mobile and arriving. Hello, Doc. You still with us? Okay, one moment, folks. I see what happened. Are you able to hear me now? Scipio? Yes. Yes, I see what happened. I'm going to have to plug my phone in so that we won't have the screen go dark. Okay, no problem. No problem. Um, last that I heard, you were speaking on Mobile, Alabama, and the port city. So we'll get right back to it. No problem. Absolutely. I was going to say that it's not an area that I've looked at very closely, but I do know that one of the similarities that's important is that Mobile, Alabama, uh, as well as a, the Spanish-Caribbean uh, countries were both founded as Catholic societies. Mobile, Alabama was founded by French-speaking Catholics and uh, Cuba, uh, which my research largely explores, 
was founded by Spanish-speaking Catholics. And so there are some similarities in terms of the way downtown looks. Uh, there's a cathedral square that is similar to some of the squares in Latin America or the plazas in Latin America. Okay, and I think that based off of your writings and based off of what I have read pertaining to your studies so far, it seems that the Catholic ideal or the the Catholic infusion of re- religiosity um, is also a common factor and in, in, in maybe that has something to do with Alabama and the, the Cuban connection uh, even past port cities perhaps because I think it ha- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah go ahead go ahead man I think it has something to do uh, with uh, with the histories of the way in which festival is understood um, there's a professor at the University of South Alabama uh, Kern Jackson Dr. Kern Jackson that looks at Mardi Gras in the city of Mobile Mardi Gras the Mardi Gras tradition started in the United States at least the Mardi Gras tradition started in Mobile not New Orleans though most people tend to associate it with New Orleans um, and the Mardi Gras tradition is something that um, Catholics do prior to Lent prior to that moment where they're supposed to fast or they're supposed to give up something. And uh, in the in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, that tradition actually is, is still going on, it's still vibrant, it also still takes place here in Mobile. And in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, Africans took that day, which was Epiphany, uh, their festival day wasn't uh, necessarily surrounding Lent, but it was Epiphany, January 6th. They took that day and they turned it to their purposes. And so they would parade uh, images of the divine spirits that they were associated with, sometimes with a Catholic mask and sometimes without. Okay. Okay. That's very cool. Yeah, that's tied into my research and that's tied into uh, to my forthcoming book. Okay. Your forthcoming book. Cuban Literature in the Age of Black Insurrection. That's right. Latino religion. That's right. All right. That is one heck of a title, sir. How did you come up, <laughs> how did you come up with the name of the title for, for your new book? And what was the inspiration behind writing such a such a masterpiece? Oh, I appreciate that. I um, The title for the book, I wish I could take credit for it, quite honestly. The title is something that my editors helped me to come up with. Uh, I was thinking about how I could bring to readers essentially this notion of blackness that was expansive. So instead of thinking about blackness as being something that is limited to the United States and Africa, uh, or perhaps a couple of uh, people of African descent in Canada, Mm. I wanted people to look to the Spanish speaking world as a, a place where you have a large population of African descent. One thing that a lot of African Americans don't realize is that 90 to 95% of the Africans brought to the Western Hemisphere against their will were brought to the Caribbean and Latin America. And so Cuba is in so many ways, um, you could say the part of the legacy of Cuba is that many of those Africans were brought to Cuba from places like West Central Africa, modern Angola, from Nigeria, even from the upper Guinea coast, places like Sierra Leone and Liberia. And, um, and so in coming up with the title of the book, I was looking for a way to convey, to connect Cuban literature with uh, anti-slavery resistance. 
anti-slavery resistance or black anti-slavery resistance on the island. So people tend to think of literature as something that is uh, the property of the elites, something that has very little to do with their daily life experiences. But I'm arguing that literature in the hands of African descended men in this particular context had a lot to do with the lives of the blacks around them and that it was a way of advocating for black emancipation. Very good. And, and your writing keeps with that theme. Um, you were kind enough to have an excerpt of your book, which is not released yet um, by Boy listeners. Um, Matthew, when is the book going to actually be released? What, what is the, the official release date? The official release date is December 16th, uh, 2019. So I'm very excited about it. It's my first, my first book. Your very, very first book released December 16th, 2019. And it's already available for, uh, for pre-order and pre-sale, yes? Yes, it is. Yes, it's available on several formats, several uh, platforms. Okay, very good. Very good. We'll make sure to uh, share some links with the listeners so that they can um, get access to your, to your um, piece. But keeping with the theme of your book, something that I found very, very interesting um, and very important, and I'm going to say this, is that not only as a professor, not only as a doctor, not only as a man, but also as a man of color, um, and one who has identified not only uh, his own personal uh, journey and trajectory up to this point, but also being able to take that identity and align it up with that of individuals from hundreds of years ago. And somehow the spirit and energy of what happened centuries ago has found its way to a very particular individual in you. And I would like to talk about that power, um, that, that elitist idea that what is found in a book or what is offered for a book could potentially be the official word of a subject, uh, especially in a time where African people and African descent people um, were being enslaved and the tool of authorship was stripped from uh, our ancestors. So how is it that these two individuals, um, in particular, um, the individual named Gabriel de la Concepcion Valdez, a Placido, how is it that this man found so much power in the written word and how was he able to convey that to the point where he became an enemy of the state okay so uh so that's a that's a very important question i think um i think i want to begin very briefly just by saying to give the listeners an idea oftentimes we are either left with the impression or we are taught uh, that african cultures were without forms of writing and uh, without systems of graphic representation that had similar purposes to alphabetic writing. And that's not true. And not only did the ancient Egyptians have a system of writing, but uh, people from West Africa also had a system of writing. Uh, the NCVD writing, for example, from Southern Nigeria um, is a system of writing that was relevant to some of the captives that were brought to Cuba. Uh, the Vai people 
in uh, the Upper Guinea Coast in Liberia uh, also have a system of writing. But with regard to what's difficult when we look at people of African descent in Spanish-speaking Caribbean and Cuba, when we look at Placido, for example, who you're talking about, Gabriel de la Concepcion Valdez, is we don't know who his African ancestors were. Okay. So one of the things that's lost with regard to Placido, as well as Manzano, and I tend to think of Placido as the Afro-Latin American Martin Delaney because he was born free. Um, he, pub- he, he, was, uh, he was a published author in his lifetime. He was successful and he advocated uh, for the emancipation of people of African descent. So unlike Martin Delaney, he does so in a, in a, very, in a stealth, in a way that's a bit more coded. I think that in order to understand how Placido became, found power in, in, in writing, you have to think about the ways in which if his ancestors possessed a written tradition, that tradition would have been lost to Placido, right? right. Uh, unless, he was, unless he was part of a secret society. Uh, and I have no evidence of his participation in any secret society. So I have no evidence of him being part of, necessarily being part or initiated, I should say. I want to say this carefully. No evidence of him being initiated to a secret society. But um, though he may have had some connections with them, but essentially, the oral tradition and Spanish literary culture converge in his, in his poetry. And I think what Placido was able to do is he is able to draw from biblical sources, from Greco-Roman um, imagery, uh, and he's also able to draw from ex- African-descended expressive culture. So we could go back to Carnival, for example. He has a poem called The Little Devil or Diablito, which is not about the devil in the biblical sense of the mm-hmm. word, but it's about um, uh, an ancestor spirit, uh, a West African ancestor spirit that he is essentially channeling through this poem. And so if the, there is no, no, no known evidence that he had knowledge of any African writing system, that's what I mean to say, essentially. He may or may not have been tied to some of the secret societies, but I have no evidence yes. of him being initiated into a secret society that had knowledge of, uh, of a writing system. But what he did have, what we know he had for certain, was a very rich and textured knowledge of oral tradition. And we know that he knew the expressive culture. We know that he went, for example, to Carnival. Um, he said that himself explicitly. And we know that he knew Spanish literary culture. And so he brings those things together. He writes in a way, he improvises. So sometimes he's not sitting down at a desk and writing. Sometimes he was on a street corner, like a rapper would be in the city of Detroit or Houston or Atlanta, right? Right. He's improvising, he's spitting verse, and that's later written down by himself or someone else. But but he was but he was so he was literate in more than one ways. Uh, more than one way. And I think that he's able to channel the African expressive culture and the African oral culture and place it oftentimes in what was a European aesthetic form um, and at the same time send a message to to people of African descent. Hmm. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting as a matter of fact. Um, it, 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 it kind of sparks me to bring up the next point. I know that I know that I know. Mm. Um, I see that in that excerpt that you were so kind to mm-hmm. share with me that um, you almost begin your book 
with that saying I know that mm-hmm. I know that I know would you mind speaking that in its Spanish form uh, for the listeners sure uh, yo sé lo que sé que lo sé yo lo sé what would be the and thank you for that thank you for that absolutely you say that again I just simply asked what would be the impetus behind such a powerful saying uh-huh that's a saying that my grandmother used to always something my grandmother used to always say so when I was a young man a boy and a young man growing up in the city of Detroit my grandmother in a lot of ways seemed to us kind of like you know someone strange and we thought that she was extraordinarily strict and all this um, but she had a way of talking about spiritual knowledge which for her was based on the Bible she had a way of talking about it with a certainty that sometimes seemed you know hard to believe she she would talk about things with absolutely no doubt and so growing growing up and reflecting on her her spiritual her spiritual knowledge uh, that included even though she was very rooted in the Bible included uh, a belief uh, that one had to guard herself from evil influences. One had to push back against what she would call witchcraft, which is not a word I use in my books, but what she would call witchcraft. And also a belief that spirits were nearly ubiquitous. You could come across them. She was very aware of that sort of thing. And so when she said, I know that I know that I know, she would tell us, for example, that she could tell sometimes that we were having bad thoughts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she called it, she called it fussing in your mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we hated that. We hated that. So it was this notion that, you know, not only should you not do something wrong, you shouldn't think it. And so her system of knowledge uh, production, her sense of knowing uh, was so deep that according to her, it extended to our very thoughts. And so that's kind of why I decided to, to lead the book with that because I believe that both Placido and Manzano, who I consider kind of an Afro-Latin American Frederick Douglass, because he was born into slavery and later comes into freedom, uh, what, what, what they came to know was not only based on uh, Iberian literacy or Western European literacy, but it was based on an African-inspired or African-descended cultural literacy. And what do you mean by African descendant cultural literacy? What 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 spiritual systems are we talking about when we think oral tradition? Okay. Um, well, when I say African descendant, I'm, I'm basically speaking to all of that which is um, uh, uh, has an African uh, origin, uh, but an African origin that may or may not be direct. Um, so what happened in the case of Cuba, Cuba becomes a Spanish colony in the 1500s with the defeat of the Taino and the Arawak, uh, first peoples or first nations. And um, Cuba has several different cultural infusions. One of the first cultural infusions that Cuba uh, had essentially in the 1500s was from West Central Africa, uh, from a kingdom uh, called the Kingdom of the Congo. Uh, which would be in uh, modern uh, modern day Angola. Uh, one of the other influences was influences uh, came from Nigeria, uh, from a group of ethnic groups that came to be known as the Yoruba. They were essentially Yoruba-speaking West African peoples. Okay. 
Yoruba speaking West African ethnicities and the, the lingua franca was, uh, was Yoruba. Today, people say they're Yoruba. Um, they, they're, they're speaking to an identity that was, that was formed uh, sometime, um, I want to say sometime in the 19th century. But for our purposes, um, what I argue my writers are engaging are the differences between uh, Catholic doctrine uh, and an African spiritual system. So the Catholic doctrine was designed to teach obedience. Doctrines always teach obedience. So whether you concur or you disagree with any of the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, those doctrines are intended to teach obedience. Everyone knows that. Uh, what I argue is that the African-inspired spiritual systems uh, were designed to afford people power to change the outcome of events. Mm. And that these writers, these writers had cultural literacy, not only uh, Western literacy, but cultural literacy, meaning that they were, I guess I would put it in the sense that they were not only aware, but that they were socialized into, they were made aware of, they were familiar with, they were adjacent to two cultures at one time. So that would be a heck of a balancing act then. Um, yeah. In my mind, um, I immediately, internally, and I think mm -hmm. that it would be, we would be hard pressed to try and say the external is more important or I felt the effect of that conflict over the internal and vice versa. I think that they both hold a lot of ground within this conversation because when we talk about the spirit of obedience, um, mm. we are looking at where the spirit comes from and is this spirit uh, set up in a way where when the ones who are receiving this, uh, in this case, propaganda, are, are we mm. empowered through that obedience or are we are we placed under another's power and I'm, I'm being very careful how I say this because we mm -hmm. are talking about two individuals in Placido and Manzano who were not the typical African descent um, African descendants um, we have mm -hmm. seen mm -hmm. examples of, of these these prideful and very valiant uh, characters in history who have somehow, one way or another, risen up above their, their personal uh, uh, issues, their personal conflicts to deal with the greater whole, you know, and actually be mm -hmm. uh, uh, the face of a movement, if I may. When I mm -hmm. think about Placido and I think about your work, um, you both have something very in common with each other. I think the difference, however, is that in, in the 21st century, um, mm -hmm. you have been given this opportunity to bring light in a way that would almost seem to carry on the narrative from Placido's perspective. And mm. back to the obedience Placido was someone who, when I when I brought up the conflict again, um, what what brought, what came to my mind in that conflict was that a man has to figure out how to courageously speak 
and to deal mm-hmm. with what is present in the face of opposition and and honestly death <laughs> honestly death mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how was Placido able to balance the obedience given to him from Catholicism and propagated into the people as a whole through Catholicism and how was he able to take those ideals and mesh them with the freedoms of African spirituality hmm I'm see how I can approach to answer that um, I think the first thing that I would there's a couple of things one would be the use of symbols wow okay. uh, the awareness of the awareness of audience and uh, and then finally uh, the creation of of a network uh, a network of friendships so I'm gonna kind of walk through all of those I think I said the network of friendships the use of symbols yes. and then and audience, audience. That's cool. um, so let me speak to those things briefly um, with, with with whatever time will allow with regard to uh, the use of symbols because Placido, Placido and Monsanto both were autodidacts or, or self-taught, uh, similar to the way that Frederick Douglass was. Uh, with some assistance, uh, Placido did have some teachers. Uh, we know he had some teachers of African descent, um, some women, women teachers of African descent, but he didn't go past the sixth grade. Okay. So he got more uh, edu- formal, formal um, education than Monsanto, uh, but he, same time, really wouldn't have been considered educated in his era, in his time, because he didn't have the classical European uh, humanistic education. Um, and the fact that he had women teachers of African descent, however, wouldn't have been a, a uncommon. There were many women that were teachers that were of African descent. Yeah. But because he could read and write, and because he was part of an oral, he was part of a society that was replete, uh, suffused with oral traditions, both Spanish oral traditions and African descended oral traditions, he was constantly being presented with different, different narratives uh, and symbols. And um, as someone who could read and write, he obviously had access to the Bible. He heard uh, homilies uh, or, or Catholic sermons on Sunday. And we know that because of the poetry that he produced. The, po- the poems that are Catholic and that were intended to be Catholic read very much in line with Catholic doctrine. Um, but he also, but because of his uh, engagement with expressive culture because he went to uh, religious uh, African Cuban religious parties and because he went to carnival in particular he was familiar with the other symbols particularly the symbols of some of the religious brotherhoods known as confraternities or cabildos and so he was able to bring those symbols to bear in his work when when necessary Um, the better one understands the intent behind symbols Mm -hmm. and, and don't simply consume them passively the more they're able to use them to create meaning and even manipulate people. Um, that brings me to the question of audience. So Placido was a person of African descent and European descent. His mother was born in Spain, uh, but his father was said to be a mixed race person or uh, quadroon, I believe, that, I believe the term was, but a, a mixed race person. We don't know how his father looked, um, but we know that in that system, he was considered mixed race and that, that particular racial system of classification. Mm-hmm. So Placido, in many ways, um, was able to, he was raised in African-descended neighborhoods, 
um, he was able to observe what white society expected of him. Um, and he was, and in some cases, he seemed to be doing what the white elite expected him to do. They would invite him, for example, to parties. And, uh, you know, you know, you have no radio, you know, <laughs> you of course have no TV, no film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so live entertainment is very important, whether it's music or a poetry, uh, an improvisation or a recitation. In his case, office, many times it was an improvisation. So he would perform, he would do that. He would write occasional poetry, He'd write a poem for a wealthy person's wedding or something. Or the, if someone passed away, write a poem in honor of this person's wife. Um, he's very aware of his audience, but at the same time, he could be found um, he could be found near Cabildos, near the religious, the African Cuban religious confraternities. He could be found at cockfights uh, where roosters are fighting, uh, something that some people condemn today, but it still happens in the Caribbean. Um, these were masculine, yeah, these were masculine spaces. These were Afro, Afro uh, Caribbean spaces. Uh, these are spaces where people had to be shouting, screaming, saying all sorts of things. So he was listening. He was constantly listening uh, to both sides. And he was immersed within uh, Black Cuban culture. Uh, the last thing I will speak to is his network of friendships. In Cuba, they always, people often won't say, mis amigos, they'll say, which are my friends, they'll say, mis amistades, my friendships. Tengo una amistad ahí, I have a friendship over there, which is very curious. Indeed. Because in Spanish, would typically be used that way in Spanish outside of, in another context, but that's how they said it in Cuba. I'm sorry, you were gonna ask me something? No, I was just intrigued by what you were saying. Well, the network of friendships would be the last thing because he had friends in high places. And so that meant there were, there was, there were Catholic priests uh, th- that he knew. There were uh, other wealthy individuals that he knew, some of African descent and some of European descent. And he was able to call upon people for favors because he knew he knew them and they knew him. Um, but because, but at the same time, he was able to build a network of African descended connections or African Cuban connections that allowed him to essentially uh, conspire against the state. So with that being said, these networks, I think were very important to his initiative, correct? That's right. Okay. Um, do you think and in all of your all of your studies thus far that Placido used and leveraged his elitist connections uh, against the very ones that he made the connections with in favor of his African uh, family and and friends I think um, I think that when you look at and I want I want to leave some of this to the imagination uh, some of this for the book, Very but good. I think that when you look, <laughs> but I think that when you look at um, the it's really a select poetry, the vast majority of his poems don't deal with the themes that I'm interested in: African-inspired spirituality and anti-slavery sentiment. Um, that's abolitionist, but also proposes radical racial equality. Uh, and when his poetry does uh, deal with these topics, he deals with it in a, in a in a way that uh, kind of shrouds the intent. So it's deeply metaphorical a lot of times and it's, um, it's stealth, it's uh, somewhat clandestine. But I think that if one were to look at the, the, the poetry that is either political um, or, and or the poetry that deals with African ideas of spirit and cosmos, 
and one were to look at his political activity and what the Spanish government accused him of trying to do, one would have to conclude that he identified deeply with people of African descent, both enslaved and free, and that he took great risk to ensure uh, their emancipation. And would it be safe for me to say that Placido's overall initiative was the emancipation of uh, African people in the Caribbean or in Cuba, to say the very least? In Cuba, I would say yes. In Cuba, I would say yes. Okay. And that he, he never traveled outside the island. So <laughs> he never traveled outside the island, but no, never got off the island. I'm sure that um, there were many, uh, even oral stories told about what could possibly be um, offside. Well, he he was he, yeah he was familiar with the Haitian Revolution and things like that. We know uh, we know that that word got out. Uh, so, which which was between 1791 and 1804, yes. he begins to publish in the 1830s, by 1834, I think it's his first piece. Okay, and in speaking of that first piece, was that first piece, uh, did that include the writing, um, The Oath, his poem? Oh, yeah, The Oath, his, his yeah. His famous poem, The Oath. Yeah, uh, that piece... Um, was published in 1840. Oh wow! So that's kind of towards the so end of his uh, career. That's right, towards the end of his uh, his literary career. Uh, I won't call it a political career, but I'll call it a literary career. So kind of towards the end of that. Okay, and that is one very interesting poem. Um, I read that poem, and I, I I don't necessarily want to touch on the content of the poem, but instead what the poem inspired uh, from okay. both sides of the, uh, of, of, of the fence here. And I, I, I wanted to just briefly discuss the idea of Africans using European religious ideologies against their enslavers and how okay. that can be viewed by the enslaver, um, especially seeing that, you know, when in, in, in our, in our, history as being um you know born in the 20th century and and being born outside of the physical enslavement of our people um Mm -hmm. we were born into a narrative you know we were born into this idea that pretty much whatever is taught to us in school we're supposed to accept um we know very well that black history month is the shortest month and it covers a very propagandized uh, approach to our history we're, we're, we're aware of that we don't have to get too deep into that but the idea that even back then I'm talking about centuries ago the spirit of keeping our people aware of our plight while also mm-hmm. non-violently working out of that you know and systematically working out of it and and and, and really doing our best to see hey um, outside of the Haitian Revolution um, there, there are not really too many examples of a non-violent, consistent approach to to kind of you know backing out of this thing or giving the enslaver a chance to back out of our enslavement without the uh, consequence of physical harm, you know. And mm-hmm. so let let me say it like this. As the enslaved, 
we obviously or our ancestors obviously had options you either ex- they would either accept the enslavement or they would fight back and risk death or risk freedom um outside of that fight a lot of us history would show um accepted the enslavement for the sake of survival um but did not accept enslavement spiritually or mentally you know and that's something that i think I, I feel you will continue to bring out. I feel that discussions like this will bring out because this is a narrative that we don't get platforms to discuss. And that's one thing I'm thankful mm-hmm. for with this with this particular. I, I must make that point because even the freedoms we have, you and I, to discuss this very mm-hmm. serious subject is something that Placido mm-hmm. had to do in secret. You know, it's something hmm. that he couldn't freely do without the fear of consequence. That's right. And so I, That's right. I, I want to at least bring that to light as we move forward in this conversation, because that's a freedom that he fought for and that we are being able to experience now. So in that idea, even us having this conversation in history, we would have been considered enemies of the state especially with the reach that our platforms have today. You know, um, the idea that we're not mm. talking to a wall, but that we actually have people who may not have been able to do the due diligence that it takes to get to this point of uh, mm-hmm. um, aptitude, uh, dealing with all of the studies and the, and the reading and, 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 and the listening involved and the observation, and then bringing back content to people who weren't able to do that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that would anger um, a group of people who wanted to keep another enslaved? Uh, what, what, which part in particular? Which well, part the particular part that, that would say, I am positioning myself, Placido, I'm thinking like Placido. Mm-hmm. I, Placido, I see that my people are in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a position systematically systemically Mm -hmm. to do something about this but i have to be careful right so with with placido this is clearly chess and he's using himself as a sacrifice to be in the circles of those who will be considered elite the ones Mm -hmm. who have access to the resources to um to ideas written in literature that maybe the average african descended person would not have even you know never have access to Mm-hmm. And instead of Placido playing the game and allowing himself to be this puppet specifically for Catholicism and the elite on that branch, he took the information. He was kind of like the spook mm-hmm. who sat by the door, you know, mm-hmm. and he took mm-hmm. this information and he began delivering it back to his people mm-hmm. for someone to want to harm him as a threat. I think I understand what your your question is. Um, Well, well, certainly um, Placio was considered uh, an enemy of the state uh, because he was in a position to acquire knowledge that the vast majority of people of African descent weren't able to. One of the things that happens uh, after the Haitian Revolution, which triumphs in 1804, is that Cuba also becomes a majority uh, African descendant society 
And so you have free people of color and you have enslaved people. The enslaved people are people who are typically, overwhelmingly people who were born in Africa, but you also had people born in Cuba that were enslaved as well. And you had then that free class of African descendants um, classified as blacks and mulattoes. And those people were in a position to move between both of those parts of society if they chose. And Placio was someone who, being literate, could have, as you seem to be suggesting, um, been content with the fact that he had a good relationship with the parish priest in Matanzas, mm -hmm. Cuba, uh, that he was uh, not only publishing poetry, but that he ended up becoming the most prolific Cuban poet uh, in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, that he, his name, he was a household name. Um, and that his work was being was being distributed. Now he wasn't able to make a lot of money, but he was in the process because I think in part because the readership was small. But he was certainly a superstar for his era, and he's not content. He's not content with his own personal success. He takes enormous risk in deciding to be sometimes overtly political, and other times to be political in a coded way. And he takes enormous risk by putting together a network of French friendships that were looking for ways, looking for ways to challenge the pro-slavery Spanish colony. Okay, and thank you for that answer. And with that being said, Placido did die of old age, correct? He was able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, yes? Mm, I think I'm gonna have to leave that. Uh... <laughs> Leave that for the book. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, with that being said, let's take a quick break. Let's get back to it and continue the conversation. Y'all, we're going to listen to some music real quick. This is a great, great piece right here by Ife Anye, the superstar. Away from me. You're a musician. You create music for the world to hear it. In order for the world to hear it, they need to be able to access it. In order for them to access it, your music needs to be on every single platform available on this planet. Visit oringi.org today to see your dream become a reality. Brace for impact. This is the Viveway Book Club Review of the Week. Set in a period of great turmoil and unrest, Cuban literature in the age of black insurrection, Manzano, Placido, and Afro-Latino religion takes us on an incredible journey into the minds of the courageous African men who stood bravely in the face of colonization in order to free their people from the horrible circumstances of enslavement at the hands of European adversaries. Cuban literature in the age of black insurrection, Manzano, Placido and Afro-Latino religion documents Placido and Manzano's unbelievable quest of freedom, liberation, and the indelible African spirit. We hope you enjoy this hand-picked featured selection in the exclusive Viveway Book Club Review. This, this is, is the Viveway Book Club Review of the Week.
so I keep a razor All I really wanted was a woman I could get it with All I really wanted was a 40 with extended clip All I really wanted was to see if they was with the shit All I really wanted was to fall and win the championship All I really wanted Chase come, real diamonds catch like when it ain't none. It take a real one to spot a fake one. I stay athletic for when the Jake come, and I don't sack for when the chase come. All I really wanted was a woman I could get it with. All I really wanted was a phony with extended clip All I really wanted was to see if they was with the shit All I really wanted was to fall and win the championship All I really wanted special guest with us once again today this is dr matthew petway and we are discussing his upcoming book cuban literature in the age of black insurrection manzano Casido, and afro-latino religion um before we continue the wonderful discussion that we're having let's go ahead and plug his platforms real quick so you can begin to tap into his vast amount of knowledge and keep in contact with him and what he has going on um, you can reach him on www.matthewpetway.com as well as follow him on his social media cha- uh, platforms. Um, in particular, we want to focus on YouTube real quick. There's a lot of quality content um, from dissertations to lectures that he has presented and made available um, to anyone interested in this subject. All you have to do is go to YouTube and type in the search field Dr. Matthew Petway and his content will come up. Go ahead and subscribe um, to his channel so that you can stay in contact and update with him as he continues to deliver uh, the quality material that he is um, being becoming well known to deliver. With that being said, I want to move into a writing of his, but this writing was also um, presented in dissertation form and in a lecture. And that lecture can be found on YouTube. 
and it's called Alter the Oath in the Body of Christ. I wanted to segue into this particular uh, book, and and excuse me, not the book, but this writing of yours, because okay, it covers I think the to- the, the the totality of why an African descent person would even want to write in the first place and capture thought in the way that Placido did uh, and Manzano did. Um, The altar, the oath, and the body of Christ. Let me let me just one moment. I want to I want to get some context. You begin this writing with a reference to the Haitian Revolution. That's right. Uh, may I read the, oh, a quick excerpt of this? Absolutely. You, sir. This is an excerpt from Dr. Matthew Petway's writing, uh, The Altar, the Oath, and the Body of Christ, Ritual Poetics, and Cuban Racial Politics of 1844. In the shadow of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, Free and enslaved persons of African descent organized a series of insurrections designed to abolish slavery, depose the Spanish military government, and boldly institute a new republic of blacks and mulattoes on the island of Cuba. Sir, that is an awesome opening to this writing because Hmm. you're welcome. And, And let me tell you why. As the children, you and I, we are the children of these uh, Afro-Latinos and Afro-Americans and African peoples who were brought enslaved and chained and who were eventually freed and now we're here and there seems to still be this level of propaganda against us, you know, whether it be in the form of the reparations talk or uh, whether it be in the form of Black Lives Matter. Um, or now, most recently, uh, the Texas school system and the idea that in their history books, they are writing that the enslaved Africans were not truly enslaved, but were indentured servants. It seems, Dr. Petway, no matter where we look, that the European elitist propaganda machine, if I may, is constantly creating content that would conflict the true narrative of what actually took place and would identify those ones who are seeking to expose the truth as enemies of the state. And it's Mm. not a new occurrence. This has been happening since uh, our people have been able to articulate what's going on. Um, what I love and appreciate about your writing is that okay. we are finally getting a narrative that is unbiased on our behalf. We get to see the story from our side of the fence when we read your writing. Mm-hmm. We, we get to feel as though, you know, when the European writes, he writes it as though we are wrong for wanting to be free (laughs) that Mm -hmm, our ancestors mm -hmm. when you read about the Haitian revolution for instance when the European writes about the Haitian revolution uh, there's this tone in the writing that kind of suggests that the Haitians were wrong uh, 
for mm-hmm. wanting to fight back and take up arms to to be free. Um, but when I read your writing, I get this sense of pride that our people, regardless of what colony and what placement they were, whether it's Brazil, Haiti, mm-hmm. Cuba, the Southern America, Southern United States, when I read your writing, there's this sense of pride and freedom that it's okay to fight back, that it was okay to uh, begin to mesh and to begin to conglomerate the best of the, the different ideologies that we were uh, presented. Would you mm-hmm. mind getting into that a little bit? Because I think the altar, the oath, and the body of Christ encapsulates that idea, um, even if it's in a brief sense. I appreciate that. Um, well, that piece itself, um, I guess the first thing that I would say before addressing the piece is that I am indebted to to people that I, I ran with, uh, so to speak, on the academic streets in East Lansing at Michigan State University, okay. where I did the master's and the PhD. Okay. And um, my training was initially rather conventional in the sense that uh, students of Latin American literature and Hispanophone Caribbean literature are being taught to read the text, uh, to do read the text closely, to read it in historical context, but not to read it considering uh, the point of view of uh, people of African descent. So when I first started working as a graduate student, um, when I did the master's, there was no one that taught in the Caribbean and certainly no one who taught on Blacks in Latin America, anything, not, not even one course. It was when I started the PhD coming back about two and a half years later that I was able to work with the African Atlantic research team uh, and Professor Wileen Dotson at the African Atlantic research team. And I was presented not only with Black Cuban uh, perspectives, uh, she's from Pensacola, Florida, but with uh, Black Cuban perspectives, but I was also presented uh, with African-inspired spirituality. Uh, there was something liberating about that space uh, because there were conversations that could take place that wouldn't necessarily take place in classrooms. And I think that's very important. Um, one of the things that people of African descent are, are taught, I would say particularly the United States, is to be a bit tepid about saying we have the right to freedom. Mm-hmm. We have the right exactly. to freedom. And uh, the Haitian Revolution really was uncompromising in so many ways. Um, the Haitian Declaration of Independence, uh, which uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, uh, is attributed to him. Um, um, the Haitian Declaration of Independence actually not only calls for Haitian independence from France, but it also reads as a call to arms to the Haitian people telling them that they must continue to fight to maintain their freedom. And it, uh, it says anathema to the French, uh, and it calls essentially for the Haitians to maintain a warrior spirit, because if they do not maintain that warrior spirit, uh, their ans- they would not be able to be buried next to their ancestors. So it's a very, very powerful piece. Um, in the altar, the oath in the body of Christ, what I wanted to do by starting with the Haitian Revolution was to write in a way, to write as if I were uh, the two men uh, that were involved in this particular incident, this particular example of insurgency. Mm-hmm. What would it look like if the, uh, 
the Catholic, the Catholic sacristan, um, who was a, an African descendant, a free African descendant, and the African who we believe was from Sierra Leone or, the, or uh, Liberia, if they, if one of them had written this, written it uh, in exile perhaps, or if they had actually been successful, what might it look like? Um, so the experience I had at Michigan State University uh, with other black graduate students there, some African, some African-American, uh, and then also um, the learning about the Haitian Revolution really put me in a position where I really wanted to make sure that the perspective was a black perspective, an African descended perspective. So thinking about the late Toni Morrison, I mean, she wow, was yes. uh, constantly want to, she, she was uncompromising about putting uh, black perspectives in the center, particularly black female perspectives in the center of her work. And she would always say that she would be asked, when are you going to write about, uh, about white people or something of the sort? And she, she would respond that the question really uh, was poorly conceived it was poorly conceived because it wasn't her responsibility to write about anything uh, but the experiences of her people. And so, in, in writing the book, uh, I really wanted to make certain that I was always seeking to put um, Cubans of African descent at the center of, of, uh, of the question, even if they're contending with the power um, greater than they. Mm. You did a very good job, sir. I must say, I must say, and I Thank think you. that Thank when you. your book comes out and it's finally released, um, I'm, I'm definitely um, gonna cop my copy and I'm gonna um, send send you my copy and hope that you would sign that for me. <laughs> I know it's gonna be an instant literary classic. I'm telling you right now, um, we definitely, as a people, we need this book, um, and more importantly, we need the perspective. Um, we, we, we rarely get the perspective that would empower us and I think that's very important um, you know especially in the 21st century where we see that we're still at odds with our own past um, I think more than ever now and you know um, uh, what could possibly or empower like you know the Haitians during the Haitian revolution or any other insurrections whether they be smaller or on a larger scale um, what do you think the overall effects um, on the psyche of enslaved Africans um, what do you think how, how would that influence those insurrections do you think it would cause those people to kind of tuck their tail and move farther into a corner or would it cause them to stand up um, and to really begin to fight back even if it wasn't a physical fight do you think that that's kind of what Placido um, you know was intending to do with his writing maybe not a physical fight but more mm -hmm. of a, a written narrative that can maybe last into the future you know um, I think that one of the uh, most powerful things that uh, an oppressor group can do is to convince the oppressed that they that uh, the conditions in which they find themselves are either their fault or part of the natural order of things mm -hmm. and um, 
And so I think that what's powerful about what Palacio and uh, to a lesser extent, Monsanto were able to do is that in conditions where they were, there was no freedom of the press, where they had to contend with censorship of all their writings, where they were explicitly forbidden from criticizing the holy faith, which meant the, the Spanish Catholic Church, which was the official religion of the colony, where they couldn't criticize the monarch, couldn't, even though Placido did it, couldn't, couldn't criticize the Queen of Spain, and, um, and things of that, that nature. They found a coded way many times, a coded way, a deeply metaphorical way to take those things on. And what, what happens is that once the official story being told about oppressed people is challenged by those very people, once that narrative is questioned, pushed back against, the, the, the advocates uh, like Monsanto and Placido, uh, who are the writers that are challenging that narrative, are able to plant seeds in the minds of uh, members of their own group. It's not always a question of giving a fiery speech. Uh, sometimes a fiery speech will incite the emotion of, uh, of, the, of the, uh, the Cuban of African descent or the African-American, but not necessarily speak to the mind or the heart in the way in which I think Monsanto and Plaza wanted to do. So fiery speech is useful, but I think they wanted to plant seeds and ideas uh, that would sit, that would remain, that would germinate and eventually produce action. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, you know, um... And thank you for that, because that's that's what I, I, I want to stress to the listeners right now. I know that we have some listeners who are um, who no fault, no fault, still identify as being Christian, um, whether it's a form of Catholicism. Um, um, we also have Islamic listeners as well. And so I think that what what is so powerful about this particular topic and discussion is that we're able to look at this finally from an unbiased perspective and from a perspective that isn't uh, beating the ideal into the minds of those who we intend to receive it. I think that's very mm. important. Um, Christianity mm. is well known to have that, that, that air of, you know, spreading the gospel, if I may. Um, by any means necessary and African spiritual systems seem to be the total antithesis of that mm -hmm. um, what I began to see though and this is kind of a side note with uh, Africans in the diaspora especially in the United States mm -hmm. is that because the majority of us were raised Baptist or raised within the Christian or Catholic background sometimes we have this issue of treating African spiritual systems in the same vein as what we would have done from a Christian perspective. Um, I've mm. noticed certain individuals uh, encounter others with the idea that, hey, we're black folk, we're African, we need to get back to our roots and you need to leave Christianity mm -hmm. alone, forget about it. tenets within all of these different spiritual systems that when we talk about the African and the diaspora was not only looked at as mm -hmm. a survival mechanism but on a socio-political level opened doors for us and allowed us into places that we might not have been allowed into or invited into 
had we specifically stuck with the African spiritual system. Now, we also know that to observe African spiritual systems for multiple centuries would have been death. It would have been the removal of limbs. It would have been uh, the removal of family, you know, in punishment. So there were laws passed where Africans couldn't even drum and sing their traditional songs. That's right. So when we think about that, um, very, very resilient people, you know, um, very resilient to be able to remove multi-generational aspects of ourselves. It's almost like asking the lion to remove his mane from his head uh, just to make mm-hmm. his captors feel comfortable with his placement in New York City Zoo. You know, um, mm-hmm. that's that's what I feel, you know, and, and it's funny because the African lion, um, even though he is transferred and stolen away from Africa and, and brought to New York City Zoo and he is matched up with his, his female counterpart and they have a, a, a first generation, first successful generation of, of African lions in New York City. And mm-hmm. No one makes the mistake of calling that line a New York lion. <laughs> you know, it is still an African lion. And, and, yes. and even more, those those zookeepers go above and beyond to make sure that that diet that the African lion gets is as close as possible to what he and she would have received in Africa. Um, same with the giraffes and the hippo. Um, all of these animals are native and indigenous to Africa. And they all stolen away at one point in time. And when you think about the animals and how they are treated in comparison to the people of Africa who mm-hmm. were stolen in the same vein and how the people of Africa were not given the diet uh, synonymous mm-hmm. with Africa um, how the people of Africa were not given the environment synonymous mm-hmm. with Africa you know even the lion he gets a cage that looks like Africa <laughs> you know <laughs> he gets to sit on rocks that are flown in from Africa you know <laughs> This is quite the analogy. <laughs> it was seen to be that the African man, woman, and child to an existence in the Western Hemisphere in the diaspora that was even less than that of the African animal. And mm-hmm. there have been multiple stories of lions rising up in the zoo, and sometimes those lions are saved, you know. Um, when they they harm an individual, a, a zoo goer, you know, someone who's messing with the mm-hmm. lion, taunting the lion, and the lion uh, somehow gets out of its cage and 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 goes mm. on a little rampage. There have been multiple instances, times they have been killed. It comes to the insurrection of the black man, woman, and child. Um, it is an immediate threat. Um, and mm-hmm. it is something that cannot be tolerated and um, there is no propaganda that is written and composed for the lion you know because the lion is still within the walls of the zoo the zoo is uh, still needing uh, an active economy to to keep it uh, you know in business and so 
you you might see an article in the newspaper that says you know lion attack and then you don't hear anything else about it but when it comes to something like let's say the Haitian Revolution or um, maybe even something like Rosa Parks sitting on uh, in the front of the bus for instance we still talk about these things to this day and not from an empowering standpoint but uh, obviously mm. for us we do in, in curriculums it is taught from a position of we are less than woe is us there is no solution for us to rise out of this situation that we are in and it is more presented to us as this is your place in society little black boy this is your place in society mm. little black girl and we are not sharing this information with you to empower you no we're sharing this information to remind you mm. of what your place in society is mm-hmm. is why your writing is so important we are once again getting an opportunity from a rare perspective to see our place in history as one of resiliency as Mm -hmm. one that has been beaten has been bruised has been trampled on but is still here and not just here as some Johnny come lately but is here and has actually been of benefit has been of asset um, to society as a whole um the economical uh, benefit that that our people have have been to this uh, to this system is insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about the idea that we can carry on this tradition? Because I feel, and in the tradition of the mesh spiritual system, to empower us. Mm-hmm. Because now I'll get to the point. Many of us are still Christian. Many of us are still Catholic. But we are starting to waken up to, to, to the truth that we are African first. And there were systems in place before Catholicism and Christianity that our ancestors observed and honored and were empowered by. But we find ourselves in this quagmire today where um, those systems have been removed from us and replaced but are slowly starting to be reintroduced to us. Do you find power? Your well-deserved placement is Dr. Matthew Petway. You, do you see the power in us removing Christianity and Catholicism in place of our original ancestral observances? Or do you believe that we should continue to mesh those together in order to move forward into a new paradigm? That's an extraordinary question, Olusanya. I think um, with regard to um, religion and uh, and spirituality, it's a question that uh, people of African descent should ask themselves, or that we should ask ourselves essentially is, is this contributing to my liberation? Wow. Does this, does this contribute to my liberation? And what will my liberation look like? Um, wow. I think that's one of the questions to ask. I think the other question, and I, think, I really do think that one has to approach it by asking a series of questions. 
So there's a self-inventory. Uh, that is a process of discovery, of reading, of study, uh, a process of listening to uncomfortable but well-informed opinions. Uh, in other words, if someone is Protestant, they've grown up in the Black Baptist Church or in another denomination, and they're presented with uh, African-inspired spirituality, I think instead of rejecting it off the cuff, they should study. I think that's the, that's the better way to approach it. Um, I think the other thing, question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we uncomfortable with it because it is African? Wow. Traditionally African, not, not modern Africa, where you have hip hop artists and whatnot, but traditionally African. And I think that uh, that was a question I had to ask myself. Well, my first trip to Cuba in 2004, it was very important for me to ask myself because I had grown up with a father who is a convert to Islam, uh, who, who was a convert to Islam. and. Um, and growing up with mother who was a convert to Islam and later returned to her Christian roots. But there was no clear, open uh, belief in an African, traditional African spirituality. And uh, so I had to confront essentially this deep seated anxiety about it. I confronted it while in Cuba, while in the field. Uh, but I remember the most memorable experience I have actually confronting my fear, which was a fear of African spirituality comes or came when I, what, not when I was in Cuba, but when I was in Ghana. The one trip I made, have made to Africa thus far was to Ghana. And I remember standing on the, the, the seashore of the Atlantic Ocean uh, with other members uh, that, of the African Atlantic research team that traveled to Ghana with me. And I remember uh, just doing some sort of ceremony in honor of Yemaya. Um, the, the African divine spirit associated with the power of the of the sea, of the ocean. And I remember it, it occurred to me in that moment that when any African uh, that was coming from a part of West Africa that was familiar with, with that particular African divine spirit, with Yemaya, not a God, but an African divine spirit, since there's a belief in one God within the traditions. I said, anybody on those ships chained to other human beings and their own filth, maybe next to a woman who's about to have a baby. If they're going to cry out, they're gonna cry out to Yemaya or perhaps the ancestors. I said, how could someone who had no knowledge of Judeo-Christian traditions be expected to cry out to anyone else? And that was the moment in which I kind of shed, really began to in a major way shed uh, my anxiety surrounding those traditions because I realized if they, if they believed in Yemaya, if they could say, I know that I know that I know, but about Yemaya, not about the Bible, but about Yemaya, there had to be a reason for it. And that motivated me to, to say, let me learn more. Let me learn more. I think that it requires a process of self-inventory. And one has to ask, is this a part of, of my reparations? This is this a part of me pushing away the colonial thinking or, or decolonizing my mind? I think some people will say, yeah, it is for me. And some people will say, no, it's not for me. Um, but uh, but uh, it's, 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 I think that, I think that uh, it's a personal decision, but that one of the things that I set out to do is to teach about it in my courses, graduate and undergraduate courses. Um, and I have taught about it uh, at the University uh, of South Alabama. And I've taught about it other places as well. And I think it's important to present it not as something to be feared, uh, but as an alternative system of knowledge. My brother, 
I thank you so much. What you just said was so enlightening. Um, and there was a point that you said, and I and I have to bring this back up, and I will hope that all okay. the listeners are able to tune in to what was just said in this. Is this a part of my reparations? Let me say that one more time. This is Dr. Matthew Petway's words now, folks. Is this a part of my reparations? And that question was asked in response or in context to identifying with traditional African spiritual systems. And we talk about money. We talk about the idea of being paid back what is owed to our ancestors and and being the benefactors or beneficiaries of that. But we always seem to go into a monetary uh, conversation, even when we talk about uh, the United States government and them paying back the descendants of African enslaved individuals, what was owed to our ancestors. It is always about money. And I think right now it's upwards of over 43 or 40 to 50 trillion dollars they're talking about. Um, It could be billion or trillion, either way it goes. The idea behind it is monetary. And I think that we have to get back to this place where before we can begin to ask for the money, we have to repair our spirit. We have to repair our mentality. We have to repair our relationships with each other and with our traditional systems. Because there's no way that we can move forward as a unified people, receiving upwards of $50 trillion, whether it be in the form of collegiate uh, scholarships, which would go right back into their school systems, might I add, whether it be in the form of grants or um, any sort of debt forgiveness, which would all go back to their system, might I add, mm-hmm. we must first do what Ma- Dr. Matthew Petway suggested and ask ourselves a series of questions. And I think because most people are moved and inspired by the idea of receiving money, let's focus on that keyword of reparations. But instead of asking solely about the monetary value of our ancestors, let's talk about what they lost in the form of language. Let's talk about what they lost in the form of rhythm, in the form of song, in the form of textile creation in the form of written language, oral histories, in the form of architectural knowledge, in the form of judicial knowledge, in the form of um, uh, royal being royal dignitaries and having systems thousands of years old that money could never buy. Is this a part of our reparation? Is returning back to a traditional standpoint part of who we are. And if that answer is yes for you, then I highly suggest that you purchase the book, Cuban Literature in the Age of Black Insurrection, Manzano, Placido, and Afro-Latino Religion by Dr. Matthew Petway. We're gonna end this segment of the Vibe Way, the Scipio podcast show. But before we go, Doc, is there anything that you would like to leave the listener with, as well as how we can contact you Um, outside of this platform so that we can stay in contact with your updated uh, studies and anything that you have to offer to the community. Well, first, I want to really thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners on this platform uh, about my research and about my upcoming book. Um, 
And and the other thing I would uh, say is that I think part of what what I hope will come out of uh, this particular interview is conversations about about blackness that are increasingly grounded in in Africa, um, in conversations about blackness that are expansive, that encourage us to look outside of the four walls of the United States, that encourage us to look uh, to Nigeria and encourage us to look to the Congo and encourage us to look prior to Christianization. Uh, and not with fear or shame, but with a, in a spirit of inquiry uh, and a spirit that would honor uh, those who came before us. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. And how can we contact you, sir? Uh, I can be contacted. Actually, I think um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Matt Petway. The handle is at Dr. Matt Petway. So that's one way. Uh, but I think if to correspond in an email fashion, my Facebook author page, Matthew Petway, PhD, anyone who sends a message to there, I usually get back within about a day, a day or two. Matthew Petway PhD. So you could uh, like the page on Facebook and then you can send a message to that venue. Very good. I'm also, uh, work is also available on YouTube and, uh, and Matthew Petway PH, Matthew Petway.com, excuse me, is my webpage. Okay. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And you know, after the release of your book and what day is the release of your book again for the listeners? December the 16th. All right, you heard that December 16th. It's perfect timing for everything that's going on. You have a lot of holiday shopping going on for your family. I want you to treat yourself this this holiday season and please pick up this book. I can't stress that enough. There's been so much scholarship put into this into this piece of literature. And it's actually a piece that you can use to empower yourself as well as open up your mind to think laterally to think a little bit differently concerning who you are as an individual and how you can move forward to possibly of your people who are looking to uh, empower and free their minds as well with that being said y'all this is the vibe way with skip your podcast show as always keep that surfboard close because we like to catch that wave Until next time. These days, everybody owns something. Trying to go hard, but it turned out to be nothing. I know it's so quick to strike a match and start a fire to feel the less desire. But not me, my heart is always beating and feeling for the lifetime real love. Short change, my love is worth more than a billion. Cause I only got this life, and for my heart, I will fight. And I know I win, but it's mine. Don't need another lover.
Cause you really wanna see me segment of the Vibe Boy Podcast show with Scipio. I truly hope you enjoyed yourself. I want you all to know that you can look forward to more great content. I'm going to be having some very special guests featured in the future, and I'd like you to tune in for those episodes as well. I look forward to hearing from you, and as always, get your surfboard, because we finna catch this wave. You create music for the world to hear it. In order for the world to hear it, they need to be able to access it. In order for them to access it, your music needs to be on every single platform available on this planet. Visit oringi.org today to see your dream become a reality. Brace for impact.